the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin. Sam Maupin is engineering. Hey, we're glad to have you with us. Today we'll uh, cover some of the day's headlines, but we'll also have a conversation with Shundron Thomas, author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. And uh, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. And I found an interesting uh, column that suggests America is readier than ever to repeal Roe. Now, he wasn't referring necessarily to opinion, but the infrastructure for a post-Roe America is the subject of uh, the column, and I'll share some of that with you in the 5 o'clock hour as well. But first, some of the news headlines. President Biden has invoked the Defense Production Act to address the ongoing shortage of baby formula throughout the U.S. The White House announced yesterday evening the president is requiring suppliers of materials used in the production of baby formula to send shipments to formula manufacturers first, before other customers, the White House said in a press release. Well, the president also launched what the White House called Operation Fly Formula. The initiative calls for the Department of Health and Human Services and Agriculture Department to use commercial planes operated by the Defense Department to import baby food from other nations. Now, before uh, the president's pronouncements and the invocation of the Defense Production Act, you couldn't sell baby formula here if the instructions and the information were not in English. I'm not sure how they are getting around that or if they're only going to English-speaking nations. But this is um, now what the president has said will be done. I've directed my team to do everything possible to ensure there's enough safe baby formula and that it's quickly reaching families that need it most, the president said in a video message posted on Twitter. Well, this move comes with a shortage of baby formula. It was reported in the Wall Street Journal back in January, but has since been exacerbated with many stores out of stock all across the country. Well, the news also comes after Abbott Nutrition and the Food and Drug Administration announced an agreement to reopen their baby food formula uh, plant, their processing plant that's in Sturgis, Michigan. The plant was closed in February and Abbott um, recalled products after several reports of bacterial infections in infants who consumed products from the facility. According to the agreement, however, Abbott can only reopen the plant upon approval from the FDA, after which it will take six to eight weeks for the formula produced at the plant to reach store shelves. So it certainly is not a quick answer, but in the long term, it will help resolve the current uh, shortage that we're experiencing. Meanwhile, testifying uh, today in the false statement trial of former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, former FBI general counsel James Baker confirmed that he believed Sussman was acting as a good citizen and not on behalf of any particular client when he requested a message to pass along what he said was evidence of illicit communications between the Trump Organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. Now, it's interesting, a a quick review of Mr. Sussman and his background would have revealed who he has worked for consistently over time. But nonetheless, uh, the uh, James Baker said that he had no idea. He believed that 
Mr. Sussman was only acting out of good faith. Well, the prosecutors have alleged that Sussman lied to Baker when he approached him with what he alleged uh, was evidence of Internet communications between the Trump Organization and Russia's Alpha Bank in September of 2016, months ahead of the 2016 presidential contest. Well, Sus- <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sussman is alleged to have told Baker that he was representing no client while he was actually presenting the information on behalf of Hillary Clinton's campaign and tech executive Rodney Joff, who originally discovered the domain name system DNA or DNS uh, data that was interpreted as evidence of Trump Alpha Bank communication. I'm 100 percent confident he said that in the meeting, uh, Baker said he noted that Sussman emphasized that point pretty close at the beginning of the meeting. And while Sussman maintains that his meeting with Baker was unrelated to his work for the Clinton campaign, he was representing the campaign as an attorney at the Washington, D.C. based Perkins Coy law firm at the time of the meeting. And the Clinton campaign was billed for the time spent in that meeting. Baker was um Presented with notes taken by other members of FBI senior staff that confirmed that Baker's Baker relayed to them that Sussman was not believed to be representing a client on the day of his meeting with Sussman. But again, it was somewhat lazy to uh, not assume there might have been a connection given his history. Well, both of those members of senior staff, um, uh, Bill uh, Prestep, then head of the counterintelligence at the bureau, and Tricia Anderson who was working as a deputy general counsel under Baker at the time, are expected to testify. Baker said that in those conversations, he was trying to vouch for Sussman, a former Department of Justice colleague whom he had been friendly with for years. Prestep wrote in his notes that Sussman said he was not doing this for any client, and they took him at his word. Baker also said that he would have been inclined to conceal Sussman's identity from some at the Bureau, though he does not recall doing so because he believed Sussman was coming to him as a good citizen. Now, many have been asking the questions, how on earth does a private attorney who is political in his uh, practice gain access to um, to the head of the FBI? How How is that even possible? Well, they had been former colleagues, which might explain to some degree how he gained that access. Well, on Wednesday, Baker testified that he met with Sussman on September 19th after receiving a text from the previous evening that read, Jim, it's Michael Sussman. I have something time sensitive and sensitive I need to discuss. Do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow? I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company. Want to help the bureau? Thanks. End quote. So read from a, co- a former colleague and friend. One would not be altogether surprised that it was read as it was stated. I'm coming as a friend and not on behalf of any organization. Well, dozens of U.S. senators uh, from both parties are urging the president to include Taiwan in the major new Indo-Pacific economic initiative that he plans to launch during his first presidential trip to Asia. We'll tell you more about that when we return from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back momentarily. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Biden is heading to Asia as senators press him to include Taiwan in the new regional economic partnership. Dozens of senators, for, senators rather from both parties urge the president to include the country in this uh, new major Indo-Pacific economic initiative that he plans to launch during this trip to Asia. The president, as he heads to the region today, the administration was given no public indication yet whether Taiwan will be invited to join the proposed Indo-Pacific economic framework. 
In the face of Chinese economic coercion, the IPEF, which is the abbreviation for Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, aims to align regional countries in labor and environmental standards, supply chain security, clean energy, and the development of a modern digital economy, among other things. Taiwan has expressed its hope to be a member of the group, a status that would rile Beijing, no doubt. The Chinese Communist Party regards Taiwan as a renegade province and prioritizes isolating the island um, democracy and severely limiting its diplomatic space. Well, Taiwan supporters were troubled when the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, while testifying before the Senate Finance Committee at the end of March, declined to say whether Taiwan would be invited to take part. A month later, Secretary of State Antony Blinken He was asked about Taiwan and the IPEF while testifying before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Blinken didn't directly address the issue of Taiwan's potential membership, but did say that the IPEF is going to be open. It's going to be inclusive. And I imagine we're going to be engaging virtually every country in the region. End quote. Well, on the eve of the president's trip, 50 senators, 36 Republican, 14 Democrats joined the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senators Bob Menendez, a Democrat, and Jim Risch, a Republican, in a letter Wednesday urging him to include Taiwan. Excluding Taiwan, they wrote, from the IPEF would significantly distort the region and global economic architecture, run counter to U.S. economic interests, and allow the Chinese government to claim that the international community does not, in fact, support meaningful engagement with Taiwan, they wrote. Well, the senators highlighted both the importance of Taiwan as an economic and trading partner and the strategic aspect, arguing that it is critical for U.S. security interests that Taiwan is embedded in the region's economic Architecture. Now, it may be that the administration was unwilling to make public their plans to include Taiwan for uh, reasons that um, only they would understand. And it may be that they have declined because uh, China has made it very clear any provocation and they would consider the inclusion of Taiwan a provocation uh, would, in fact, um, be viewed in just that light. In other, um, in other news, the ties that bind the global economy together and deliverance, uh, delivered goods in abundance across the world are unraveling at a frightening pace. In fact, uh, one uh, column recently said the age of scarcity has begun with $1.6 trillion a hit to the world economy, not just ours, but the world economy. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's COVID zero lockdowns are disrupting supply chains. And when they refer to the COVID uh, Uh, The China's COVID zero lockdowns, that means Shanghai, for example, is just at a standstill. Um, The uh, this is disrupting supply chains, hammering growth, pushing inflation to 40 year highs. Uh, They're the chief reasons why Bloomberg Economics has lopped one point six trillion dollars off its forecast for global GDP in 2022. And that is significant. But what if that's just an initial hit? War and plague won't last forever, but the underlying problem, a world increasingly divided along geopolitical fault lines, only looks set to get worse. Have you read the scriptures, by the way? You might put this in context. Bloomberg Economics has run a simulation of what an accelerated reversal of globalization might look like in the longer term. It points to a significantly poorer and less productive planet with Trade back at levels before China joined the World Trade Organization, an additional blow, inflation would likely be higher and more volatile. And it may be long term. For investors, a world of nasty surprises on growth and inflation has little cheer equity or bond markets. So far in 2022, commodities where scarcity drives prices higher 
have been among the big winners, along with companies that produce or trade them. Shares in defense firms have outperformed, too, as global tensions soar. But fragmentization uh, is going to stay. That's what um, Robert Koopman, the World Trade Organization's chief economist, predicts. He expects to reorganize globalization that will come with a cost. We won't be able to use low-cost, marginal-cost production as extensively as we did. Made in China will become a thing of the past if it exists in the United States at all. So it will be interesting to see if we are, in fact, moving into an age of scarcity and where geopolitical disagreements will have a major impact in establishing fault lines that will change where goods and services come from and limit um, those locations from which we have received goods and services at a significantly reduced cost. In other news, uh, there were disturbing warning signs. New details are emerging about the Buffalo mass shooting suspects, alarming behavior before the massacre. And in an example of classroom crisis, at least 135 teachers and aides have been arrested in 2022 for child sex crimes in the U.S. And the real number could be much higher. The subject of grooming has been uh, one widely discussed of, in recent days. In the uh, formula shortage crisis, mothers are sounding off on the ter- the terrifying reality of not being sure how they'll feed their babies. Mothers expressed fear and one told about receiving products from Mexico. Putting her thumb on the scale, Vice President Kamala Harris met with uh, abortion providers at the Supreme Court, considers role. And in a familiar split of the, uh, or rather slip of the tongue, George W. Bush made an unfortunate Iraq gaffe when condemning Putin's Ukrainian invasion. He uh, made reference to the events of Ukraine, but inserted Iraq instead of Ukraine, saying it was a mistake and could have been avoided. So it was an unfortunate gaffe on the part of the former president. Calling on pro-choice lawbreakers, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin tells the Department of Justice, prosecute Supreme Court of United States home protesters. The statute is clear. Well, Chuck disapproves. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer doesn't approve of the New York congressional map triggering infighting among House Democrats. Crying terror, an MSNBC guest called the GOP the domestic terrorism party, likening Republicans' white supremacy threat to 9-11. Now, it's just remarkable to me, first of all, to distill an entire political party that represents half the nation and to apply a single monitor to every member. It doesn't matter that there are Asian, African-American, Hispanic in increasing numbers, uh, Republicans to ascribe to every member of that particular group, which is kind of the definition of racism, if you will. Uh, a single description that the Republican Party domestic terrorists. It's remarkable to me that, and you know, it's not just the Democrats who make these kind of broad statements, but it's remarkable to me what passes as acceptable discord, discourse in the political arena these days. Proud of Biden, a Democrat strategist told MSNBC that candidates should run on Biden's economic record, saying there's a lot to be proud of. I would like to hear that rundown. Defining disinformation down, Senator Tom Cotton says the Democratic Party seems to think disinformation are facts that reflect poorly on the president. And in a puzzling abortion activism twist, adopted Baltimore Sun guest writer Melissa Fallon, she wishes her own mother had had the right to abort her. I wonder if she's thought that through. Jesse Waters says the Biden administration has been using Twitter as a political tool to control the president's image. And Tucker Carlson points out that anyone who questions Biden's economic policy is called a racist. 
In a lesson on Pregnancy 101, a Democratic witness told House committee members that men can get pregnant and have abortions. Again, I'd like to see the biology, the images making that fact plain. Undertaking an uphill battle, defense attorneys representing Michael Sussman in the first trial stemming from special counsel John Durham's investigation into the origins of the Trump-Russia probe signaled that they were contemplating moving for a mistrial, a request the federal judge presiding over the case said Wednesday he was not inclined to grant. President Biden's disinformation board project has been paused and the appointed disinformation czar has resigned. Well, the controversial head of the Department of Homeland Security's uh, board resigned on Wednesday following weeks of attacks on her role. And as it emerged that the uh, panel was being paused only three weeks after it was set up, the board was intended to combat misinformation. But critics quickly honed in on uh, the role of its chief, Nina Jankovic, and her history fighting uh, disinformation and extremism by producing both. Senator Marsha Blackburn said Joe Biden is pausing his unconstitutional disinformation board that would censor free speech and target conservatives. Pausing is not enough and needs to be permanently shut down. The New York Post says in her goodbye statement, Jankovic whined that mischaracterizations of the board became a distraction from the department's vital work and indeed, along with recent events globally and nationally, embodies why it is necessary. I maintain my commitment to building awareness of disinformation's threats and trust the department will do the same, she concluded. Well, Curtis Houck says... Last week, you guys said you needed the Disinformation Governance Board at DHS to make sure freedom of speech is protected across the country and that these platforms are not used for forms of disinformation. What changed? KJP laments it's been mischaracterized. President Biden invoked the Defense Production Act to fly baby formula in from overseas. And according to internal Democrat polling, Democrats are getting blown out in November. According to the Daily Wire, a new report reveals that the Democrat Party's internal polling shows them getting blown out in November's congressional election at a meeting last week with Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chair Sean Patrick Maloney. Democrats who are on the bubble in the upcoming election were informed that in battleground districts, the generic Republican is beating the generic Democrat by a whopping eight percentage points, 47 to 39. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour today, Shundron Thomas, Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, national gas prices are higher than ever, and they're expected to continue to rise. It's an inauspicious record. For the first time, gas prices in all 50 states have hit an average of at least $4 per gallon, according to data from AAA, formerly the American Automobile Association. It's happening as global crude oil prices trade nearly $110 a barrel. And while the price is below the recent highs seen in March, the elevated national average of gas prices could signal higher, even higher uh, prices ahead in the summer during the travel season, if there is a summer travel season. Uh, AAA said as refiners switch to the more expensive summer blend of gasoline, the seasonal formulation can, apt up, uh, can add up to $0.10, 10 cents rather per gallon, depending on location. According to J.P. Morgan, prices could surge 
Another 37 percent by August, hitting $6.20 per gallon, the national average. This is due to expectations of strong driving demand throughout the summer driving season, which uh, spanned from Memorial Day to the last um, day vestiges uh, of summer at Labor Day. Reuters also points out that the amount of crude oil in the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve dropped by 5 million barrels in the week to May uh, in the week of uh, May the 13th. A data from the U.S. Department of Energy showed stockpiles in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve fell 538 million barrels, the lowest since 87. And the president in March announced the largest release ever from the U.S. Emergency Oil Reserve at one million barrels per day of crude oil for six months from the reserve in an attempt to bring down gasoline prices that have soared during Russia's war with Ukraine. It doesn't look well, at least prosperous. Dow posted the biggest loss since 2020. The industrial average posted its biggest loss since uh, the year on Wednesday after another major retailer warned of rising rising cost pressures, confirming investors' worst fears over rising inflation and rekindling the brutal 2022 sell-off. The Dow shed 1,164.52 points, or 3.57% to... um, uh, the average uh, biggest decline since June of 2020 is the lowest close for a Dow Jones Industrial Average since March of 2021. I won't go through all of them, but Karen Jean-Pierre says the stock market is not something we keep your eye on every day. But uh, the U.S. economy and the financial markets are in for an unprecedented decline. Yet this time, the uh, uh, Fed won't be able to help. In fact, it will add to the pain. Either it will make the recession and financial crisis worse, or it will make inflation worse. Most likely it will do both. The U.S. embassy in Kiev has reopened after a three-month closure. Russia failed to take Kiev, then moved on to Mariupol, which has now fallen. From the story, in a statement issued on Wednesday, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said that even though embassy personnel left in the days before the Russian invasion, uh, this had no effect on American support for the people of Ukraine. He said that when the embassy temporarily shuttered, the U.S. pledged to continue our assistance and work to eventually reopen. Now that day has come, Blinken said. Today we are officially resuming operations at the U.S. embassy in Kiev. The Ukrainian people, with our security assistance, have defended their homeland in the face of Russia's unconscionable invasions and, as a result, The stars and stripes are flying over the embassy once again. CNN points out that ahead of Russia's invasion, the U.S. and many other countries pulled diplomats and evacuated embassies and consulates from Kiev to the western city of Lviv. The State Department moved its diplomats to Poland and suspended all diplomatic services in Lviv just before the invasion began. Last month, after Russia shifted its aims in Ukraine away from Kiev to focus on eastern Ukraine, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged countries to reestablish a diplomatic presence in Ukraine. Many other countries have already reopened their embassies in Kiev, and there have been calls for the U.S. to follow suit. Um, Kylie Atwood points out the U.S. flag was raised uh, over the U.S. embassy today in Kiev to mark the official resumption of U.S. embassy Kiev operations. The U.S. Soccer Federation announced men and women, both teams, will be paid equally. The U.S. Soccer Federation announced Wednesday that it has reached a deal to pay the U.S. men's national team and the U.S. women's national team equally, eliminating a contentious pay gap 
that saw female players earning less. The new collective bargaining agreement will run through 2028 and include the equalization of World Cup prize money, the organization announced. In February, the governing body and the women's team announced a settlement to resolve the longstanding pay dispute and that with the federation agreeing to pay the two teams equally in the next union contract and give the women's team uh, $22 million in back pay. Breitbart points out that while the agreement is being called equal pay, the deal actually heavily favored the women. Women's soccer has far fewer fans, both watching on television and going to stadiums. The 2019 Women's World Cup, for example, reached a record 1.12 billion viewers across the world. Uh, That may sound like a lot until you realize that the year before, the Men's World Cup earned 3.572 billion viewers worldwide and earned $6 billion in profits. The earnings disparity is nothing new either. For example, in 2010, Men's World Cup earned $4 billion in revenue, but the Women's World Cup that year earned only $73 million. Joe Pompliano said the U.S. soccer has announced a new CBA that guaranteed equal pay for its men and women's men's and women's teams. The unequal payment they received from the from FIFA and the World uh, Cup will be pooled together and shared equally among the members of both teams. The U.S. is the first country to do just that. Well, the House Judiciary Committee held a contentious hearing on abortion. The Judiciary Committee held the hearing revoking your rights, the ongoing crisis in abortion care access. And that reflected one point of view on the subject. It was held on Wednesday. The remarks from pro-abortion members and the uh, witnesses called by Democrats were just as absurd as the title of the hearing. An Alabama abortion provider accused Congressman Chip Roy, a Republican out of Texas, of using inflammatory language after he literally described her job during a congressional hearing, what actually takes place in in an abortion. Roy began with a simple question, asking the doctor, when was the latest... um, She had performed the procedure and abortion based on gestational age, and Robinson made it clear from the start that she did not like the line of questioning. In other words, she didn't want to have to explain herself. Well, Greg Price says, Roy, have you had baby parts that you've um, had to discard or store? Robinson, you have used inflammatory language. Well, I wish it was only inflammatory language and not the um, dissection of actual living children in utero. That seems to me a bit worse. Dennis Prager delivered a speech um, that Biden should have given, explaining what true leadership would look like uh, when criticizing the speech President Biden gave in Buffalo, seeing it as an exploitation of an opportunity for political gain. Biden helped Saudi oil production while U.S. strategic reserve hits a 35 year low that could spell disaster in the future. As gas prices continue to set daily national average highs, the president's response of opening the U.S. strategic petroleum reserve has done nothing to lower costs at the pump. That was the pretext for doing it. Furthermore, the release of one million barrels a day from the SPR has whittled down the stockpile to 538 million barrels, a low not seen since 1987. To make matters worse, the Biden administration is actively working to cut U.S. oil and gas production by canceling oil and gas leases and banning large offshore drilling, all while blaming high gas prices on the greedy oil and gas industry. Meanwhile, the president has been begging Saudi Arabia to turn on the spigot. This from the guy who promised on the campaign trail that he would make the Saudis pay a price for murdering journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Well, thanks to the anti-fossil fuel agenda, the Saudis have been raking in the dough. Saudi Arabian oil giant Aramco reports an 82 percent increase in net income over the first quarter in 2022 as the company hit a record thirty nine point five billion dollars. Aramco is now worth more than Apple. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Back, you're listening to the Georgine Rice. Did I say earlier we were going to our break? I did say that. Psych. <laughs> That's all I can say. Anyway, we're back. We have news traffic coming up after this segment. And then in the second hour, Shundron Thomas, author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Republicans had a massive uh, turnout advantage in the 2022 primaries, and the Department of Homeland Security rather, is preparing for a wave of violence ahead of the potential reversal of Roe versus Wade. The summer of rage in which women will be ungovernable. That's a direct quote. Gas prices will surpass $6 nationwide by August, according to J.P. Morgan. And missing the memo, Disney Groomers launched a pride collection clothing line for kids. A network of retired lawmakers is boosting Chinese Communist Party influence in Washington as Beltway institutions cut ties with Chinese Communist Party front groups. A group of former congressmen has kept a close relationship with a think tank that oversees Beijing's foreign influence efforts. The Association of Former Members of Congress, it's a networking hub for former lawmakers, has hosted multiple events since 2020 for the China-United States Exchange Foundation, the Communist Chinese Party's uh, leading foreign influence think tank. Well, the Exchange Foundation has worked hand in glove with the Exchange Foundation's lobbyists to host policy events where pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong have been blamed on foreign forces and the United States has been accused of directing vitriol toward China. It's really murky and pretty gross, says Dylan Hetlitter uh, Gaudet, the and the overlapping ties between Capitol Council, the Exchange Foundation, and the Association of Former Members of Congress constitute a shadowy lobbying operation. A grocery store worker says a 911 dispatcher hung up on her during the weekend shooting in Buffalo, New York. That dispatcher may very well lose his slash her job. Former police officer Thomas Lane pled guilty to manslaughter in the George Floyd killing. Lane pled guilty to a state charge of aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter for his role in the May 2020 killing of George Floyd, whose death sparked nationwide protests against alleged racially biased policing. As part of the plea deal, Thomas Lane will have a a count of aiding and abetting second-degree unintentional murder dismissed. And in a bit of humor from the Babylon Bee, the disinformation board narrowly outlasts CNN Plus. I guess that's a compliment. Well, this day in history, 1538, Anne Boylan, the second wife of England's King Henry VIII, is beheaded after being convicted of adultery. 1649, England is declared a republic by parliament following the execution of King Charles I. The monarchy would be restored by 1660. 1914, California Governor Hiram Johnson signs the Webb-Haney Act, prohibiting aliens uh, ineligible for citizenship from owning farmland, a measure targeting Asian immigrants, particularly Japanese. That's 1914. 1921, Congress passes and President Warren G. Harding signs the Emergency Quota Act, which establishes national quotas for immigrants. 1928, an explosion in a coal mine kills 195 miners in Pennsylvania. 1943, in his second wartime address to the U.S. Congress, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill pledges his country's full support in the fight against Japan. That evening, Churchill meets with uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the White House, where the two leaders agree on May the 1st, 1944, as the date for the D-Day invasion of France. The operation would end up being launched 
over a month later. 2001, Apple opens its first retail stores in Tyson's Corner, Virginia and Glendale, California. 2006, on this day in history, a key U.N. panel joins European and United Nations leaders in urging the Bush administration to close its prison in Guantanamo Bay, saying the indefinite detention of terror suspects there violates the world's ban on torture. 2014, the U.S. charges five Chinese military officials with hacking into U.S. companies' computers to steal vital trade secrets. Also, on to, uh, in on this day in history, 2014, Lucy Lee, at age 11, becomes the youngest player to qualify for the U.S. Women's Open by winning the sectional qualifier at Half Moon Bay in California. She was 11 years old. 2018, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are married, becoming Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Did you have any wedding cake today? No, no wedding cake today, Sam. 2019, on this day in history, Robert F. Smith, a billionaire tech investor, pledges to eliminate student debt for an entire class, the 2019 Morehouse College graduating class. I don't know if you ever had the chance to witness the video of that, but it was it was tear-inducing and quite uh, quite raucous. Can you imagine you're graduating, someone approaches the podium and says, oh, by the way, what you owe for the education, you're receiving this a diploma for, that's been paid. Wow. Kind of reminds me of the grace that gives us even better access. Anyway, the baby formula shortage is hard lesson about the inner workings of the federal government, and we should all pay attention. So says Lewis Morris, saying that half of American infants depend on the welfare state. Now, that's significant half. Beyond demonstrating the sheer ineptitude of um, the, the crisis and those overseeing it, the crisis has pulled the curtain back on a a racket being run by the government at the expense of American taxpayers. The Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, he says, better known as WIC, began as a pilot program in 72 and went nationwide three years later. The program assists low-income mothers with infants and children under five and mothers-to-be at nutritional risk. Any mother whose household income is at or below 185% of the poverty line is eligible for this assistance, which comes in the form of direct aid to purchase healthy food, including whole grain bread, cereal, fruits and vegetables, and of course, baby formula. When people ask why there's a baby formula shortage in the world's wealthiest and most technologically advanced country, they don't have to look much further than WIC, which accounts for up to 68% of all infant form- formula sold in the U.S. Now, I was not aware of that. Either under the program, formula companies compete for exclusivity exclusivity contracts by selling their products to states at huge discounts. Even with 85 percent rebates, the companies still make money because they end up with state monopolies. Along the way, stores give prominent shelf space to WIC approved formula brands, and doctors also tend to recommend these brands to their patients. WIC is thus a behemoth capable of toppling. Uh, the uh, baby formula market because it currently serves 53% of all infants in the United States. Or put another way, more than half of all American babies are on welfare. Uh, let the that sink in. Remember the um, re-election campaign of former President Obama, the ad that said, uh, the one with a fictional character named Julia getting cradle-to-grave assistance from the welfare state. Well, there's the cradle part of that image. Since WIC's creation, the federal government has consistently expanded in it, uh, expanded it rather in good times and bad. As with uh, all government programs that took on the life of its own, WIC has now uh, now has 1,900 local offices, 89 state offices, um, 
There are 50 states, but they have 89 state offices and does business with 47,000 retailers. Expanding WIC is always near the top of uh, the priorities, the political priorities for the Democrats. Never do they contemplate ways to reduce WIC's massive enrollment or help at-risk mothers become less dependent. Helping women means encouraging moms to uh, either abort their children or make them and their uh, their children dependent on the on the state. All WIC and uh, its supporters can guarantee all they can guarantee is that children in the program will be healthy enough to enter public school prepared for 13 years of further uh, oversight by the state. Now, to be fair, there are other reasons for this baby formula shortage. The Trump era tariffs blocked foreign access to the domestic baby formula market and reduced domestic competition. And while sometimes well-intentioned, tariffs often have an unintended but not unexpected consequence of weakening the domestic markets they seek to protect. So it uh, it goes back to the previous administration as well. Well, the FDA also shares blame because it uh, its bloated bureaucracy kept Abbott Laboratories dormant for months while it investigated a deadly bacteria outbreak that led to the deaths of four infants. It turned out that the outbreak wasn't linked to the company or its products, but the FDA didn't close its uh, investigation until last week. Abbott, by the way, has a 42% slice of the domestic baby formula market. But make no mistake, Wick and the uh, cradle-to-grave mentality are at the heart of all of this, and that's what we get when we grant the government so much power. When half of our uh, babies are on welfare, it doesn't mean full speed ahead. It means the program isn't working. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic now coming at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, we'll hear from Shundron Thomas, author of Discover Joy in Work, and we'll share some thoughts on America, readier than ever to repeal Roe versus Wade, referring mainly to the infrastructure, not necessarily the willingness to jettison the policy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we'll hear from Shundron Thomas, author of Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. We'll also talk about whether or not America is readier than ever before to repeal Roe versus Wade in terms of the infrastructure to support those impacted by it. We'll get into that later in the program as well. Well, soon after a white 18-year-old shooter targeted black customers of a community grocery store in Buffalo, New York on Saturday, Denise Walden, executive director of Voice Buffalo, a social justice and equity organization, was coordinating clergy to offer grief counseling and help families immediately, and uh, she hopes for the foreseeable future. She was also grieving personally. She knows the families of most of the 10 people killed in the massacre. This is going to take more than a week, more than a month, more than six months, she said. A member of the clergy team at First Calvary Missionary Baptist Church, a predominantly black congregation in Buffalo. We need long-term solutions and support. Walden, a 25-year organization, uh, of uh, is a local chapter of Live Free, a Christian group that has in recent years focused on preventing community violence, although this came from outside the community, which now has new questions to answer about the hate that caused this person to come into the community and create such a horrible, violent violation to the community. She said some resources are needed to counter hate in general and to cope with the reaction of the, the uh, within the uh, Buffalo black community. When tragedy strikes and those things are not in place, she says, we create an environment that can become even more dangerous because people don't know what to do to process their grief and their trauma. 
She spoke with Religion News Service about her connections to the people and was asked um, about the massacre and how things are, how they're responding to um, to these events. She was one of the officiants of a vigil on Sunday outside the Topps grocery store and uh, was asked what she said to people who were gathered there. She pointed out that it was hard. She thinks she said that she thinks um, uh, we know that there's a need for comfort. There's a need for love in the community. And there is a strong Christian presence there and that the clergy have stepped up. They're offering grief counseling, trauma counseling, all of those uh, types of things. Uh, many of those who lost their lives in that shooting were from the church, were matriarchs of the community and in the church and uh, have requested the prayers of the broader community. Meanwhile, as soon as um, others heard that a gunman attacked a Taiwanese church in California on Sunday, some Taiwanese correctly assumed political motives, and that was in fact the case. The clash became uh, between the desires of Taiwan's independence and the desire for its reunification with China has long uh, history with current um, relevance still among the diaspora churches in the U.S. The issue is... um, one that lingers beneath the surface uh, at a Christian speaking Cong- or rather a Chinese speaking congregation where Christians from mainland China worship together with those from Taiwan and Hong Kong. Pastors usually want to avoid stirring political division. Even some predominantly Taiwanese churches may have members that fall on either side. But a smaller number of older Taiwanese speaking congregations like Irvin Taiwanese Presbyterian Church, where the shooting took place, are more likely to see the issue as a significant part of their cultural and theological background. And though the Southern California Church belongs to the Presbyterian Church, it also has a close, deep-rooted relationship with the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan. And it reveals the the challenges within the body of Christ in general when political issues, valid, legitimate issues, can cause division among us. I'm reminded that the scriptures tell us, particularly in the gospel, one of the plagues of the early church was uh, was quarrels, and that divided the church and ran counter to what Jesus prayed for us in John 17. Uh, we need to be praying for the church, um, praying for the church in Buffalo, that they would be able to rise to the occasion and offer comfort and solace and the gospel to people suffering there. And within the um, Chinese, Taiwanese and other Asian churches, that they would be able to deal with the political pressure of issues that impact their communities here in the U.S. and certainly those uh, back at home as well. So just a challenging time to be alive, but certainly not unfamiliar to the church in which quarrels and division has always been the challenge for us to avoid. Well, the government funded report urges um, the national, let's see, the NHS um, to use terms like chest feeding and frontal birth instead of the words that would more directly describe uh, what happens. The recommendations are based on the experience of 129 pregnant trans people. In other words, women, because only women have children who have chosen to live as men and uh, want the world to adjust to their decision. Well, some said a lack of inclusive language in maternity was consistently triggering. One celebrated uh, being uh, provided a private room to give birth to avoid women who were also present giving birth. Well, maternity services should use inclusive terms like chest feeding so trans pregnant people aren't offended. A government-funded report says, uh, I think um, avoiding deliberate offense is certainly a laudable uh, goal, but In this circumstance, I'm not sure that's always possible. 
The report set from the LGBT Foundation made the recommendation after surveying 121 uh, Britons on their experience of pregnancy. These are women living as men. Another example of a gender loaded term is um, how you describe birth, uh, recommending frontal or or lower birth instead. Now, every person who gives birth does so in exactly the same way. Every person who gives birth is a female. Whether or not she chooses to take male hormones and live as a male, she is still biologically a female. So changing the language um, is somewhat challenging. The report said inclusive terms should be used across NHS services and people in national guidance should be introduced to ensure pregnant trans have the option of their preferred words. But I would add to that not to be too terribly offended if um, if mistakes are made. It's not possible to guess the language someone might use to describe themselves based on how they look or sound or who they are in relationship um, with the report reads. The charity also says some trans and non-binary people would benefit from having a private space in hospitals to give birth so that they are not made uncomfortable by seeing other women. It detailed the experience of one person who said, I didn't have to go to a ward full of women after giving birth. I was actually provided with a private room for me and baby, which was very helpful in accommodating me and my gender identity. Well, that seems like a fair um, solution for those who who choose to live other than their biology. NHS services are, um, that's the National Health Service, are currently in a woke storm of degendering language surrounding women and pregnancy, which is significantly challenging for those trying to navigate the language and how to administer services for those who live outside of their biology. Brighton and Sussex University Hospitals Trust um, are now referring to breast milk as human milk in official guidance for everyone, not just women who live as men. The new report was commissioned by the Health and Wellbeing Alliance, a partnership between charities and the NHS, the uh, British National Health Service, which is managed jointly by the Department of Health and Social Care and the Office of Health um, Services. It is very confusing when we decide to bend the lines and change definitions uh, challenging for everyone, those who choose to live under those new definitions and those who Uh, serve them and work and live with them. This is the brave new world we live in. Well, the uh, uh, Planned Parenthood has found a new revenue stream, and that apparently is trans kids. Last year, the American uh, America's number one abortion provider was actively seeking to expand its business beyond being a mere abortion mill by also including gender transitioning services, thanks to reporting from Abigail Schreier. It has exposed that Planned Parenthood was... Uh, handing out cross-sex hormones to teenagers like they were handing out other things that they are most um, noted for. We'll have to return to the story on another occasion, but it's rather interesting uh, to expand their revenue stream. They've expanded their services. We'll get into that on another another day. Shundron Thomas, author of Discover Joy and Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is many of us struggle to find a sense of purpose or fulfillment in what we do. And the question is, is it possible for us to truly flourish at work, or do we just have jobs? Well, business executive Chandrong Thomas reveals how work is intended to produce a lasting value and should be meaningful and productive. 
A healthy attitude toward work and the workplace requires intentionality and effort. He addresses issues of work ethics, um, character formation, and work-life synergy to find better harmony between what we do and who we are. Through empirical research and real-life stories, he reveals fundamental truths and easy-to-remember concepts for joy at work, regardless of your occupation, your age, or career stage. And that may seem like a tall order, but we're going to talk about that in uh, in just a moment. Once again, my guest this afternoon is Shundron Thomas. He is president of a trillion-dollar global investment management business and is a management group member of a leading financial services company. He previously advised institutional equity investors as a vice president of Goldman Sachs and held positions in sales, trading, and research in the fixed income division of Morgan Stanley. He is an engaged civic leader serving as a trustee for Wheaton College and as board of directors of the Museum of Science and Industry. He also serves as board governor for the Investment Company Institute. Uh, Mr. Thomas is a motivational speaker, lecturer, speaking nationally on a variety of issues. He also serves as an elder and board member of his local church. He's happily married and has two sons, joins us today to talk about his uh, new book, Discovery, or rather, Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, after reading that long bio, I'm, I'm surprised that you have time <laughs> to talk with us, but I'm grateful that you do. Oh, it's uh, always have time for things that are important. In the introduction, you begin by referencing an article that was published by Gallup in which they point out that the world has an employee engagement crisis with serious and potentially lasting repercussions for the global economy. Let's talk about what employee engagement is and are we facing a crisis? Yes. So I think when you start with engagement, uh, and so a lot of companies look at this statistic, and basically what we're saying when we talk about engaged employees it means engaged employees are, A, enthused about uh, their work and their workplace. And enthused employees will do things like, for example, recommend their employer as a, as a preferred place of employment to others. Uh, they also are, are willing to give uh, what I would call an outsized or an exceptional effort to their workplace, right? And so if you were thinking of having any sort of uh, workplace, you would want those types of employees. Uh, the issue that you have, though, is when you look at these statistics globally, it's very sobering. Uh, they say approximately about 13% of all employees globally would be described as engaged employees. And so simply put, the vast majority of employees that show up to work every day don't really enjoy or feel fulfilled in their workplace or their work environment. Is that the nature of the work that we do? It's less meaningful than perhaps previous generations? Or is it something that we bring to our work or fail to bring to our work that explains that lack of engagement? Well, I think there's always two sides to the coin. So if you think about it, there there certainly are situations where people are in very challenged work situations, right? Um, They could be dealing with issues of discrimination, sexism. Uh, you, you, You can name the various things. But the reality is these are very exceptional situations. And so in the vast number of instances, you have two things working together. From the standpoint of the employer, are we creating an environment where people can flourish? But most importantly, I believe it's the perspective and the mindset uh, of the employee, the worker themselves, uh, that really affects this. Henry Allen has a great uh, quote in, in, in one of his books. He says, our life is not just about what we experience, so to speak. But it's about what we think and feel about what we experience. 
And I think that's very true or apropos as it pertains to how people experience uh, their work and their work experience. Now, words are very important, excuse me, in your book. And one of the distinctions that you make very clearly is the distinction between the word work, the concept of work and a job. Can you make that? Can you explain that to us and why it's important that as we're considering transforming our occupation into a vocation, it's important to define our terms? And the reason it's important, and I think this is very interesting, because if you just look at the etymology of words, it's very telling. So mm-hmm. when you think about a job, think about that in the context of a duty or an assignment. The very etymology of uh, the word uh, refers to uh, work we do for a wage or, or compensation, right? Uh, it refers to a piece or component of work. Now, if you think of the word work uh, in and of itself, it really referred to something more like a skilled trade. Uh, you think of work as being uh, something uh, not only that takes uh, great skill, but it, it, it involves the whole self. And so you think of work also in its etymology, that very word, is being pri- part of, say, a, a greater undertaking, right? And so if you looked at the terms, you might associate the word job, for example, uh, more closely with what we might refer to as occupation. Whereas you might associate the word work uh, with a word that we use called vocation. So think about that being something more like your life's work or your calling. Now, you uh, point out that uh, your vocation is a calling. Uh, And for some of our listeners, that would seem very clear and obvious because they're doing the kind of work that uh, is, is satisfying, it's fulfilling, and they're doing work that's meaningful. But for those who perhaps have work that uh, means standing behind a counter in a, f- a fast food restaurant or the kind of work that probably aligns better with the definition of job. Is it possible to find joy in that kind of work? And so, and I think this is one of the most important things about the book, because I think the, what we're often um, led to uh, believe is that one can only find joy or fulfillment in some particular unique thing uh, that presumably uh, before we were born, we were selected to do, right? But I think in reality, um, first of all, there is dignity in all work. There is also the ability of all work to help develop in us work ethic and ultimately for us to find joy. So I'll give one example. Um, I think of the various kinds of work that I have and people look at what I do today, but I said my work experience started out when I was 11, going on 12 years old, and I began to earn money or help around the house by cutting grass or shoveling snow or different things like that. And there was not only the development of certain character traits, but there was actually a a, a sense of meaning or fulfillment that came from being able to contribute to what my family was trying to achieve or to help the greater good. So that's one example of ways that we can be fulfilled or finding meaning in our work. Uh, I give the simple example in the book. I'm one of those people that likes hands-on work. Uh, So if I'm around the house, I mean, something like cleaning or power washing my deck, mowing my lawn, believe it or not, uh, some of those times I actually am able to sort of lose myself in my work, uh, be be at one with myself, Um, sometimes uh, just that activity. And so, again, this thought that we can't find fulfillment uh, in things that aren't part of some quote-unquote special calling, I think is a misperception about the value of work. I so appreciate that. And I appreciate your mentioning your work history because it's really quite interesting. People might assume because of the lofty positions that you now hold that you can't relate to the kind of work that many of us who are average find ourselves doing. And yet 
it's possible to discover joy in the work that we have been uh, given to do. Um, in your first, uh, the first part of the book, you really focus on our attitude, and that has such a significant impact on our whole approach to working. In fact, I was thinking about there's a woman who is older than the average employee in a McDonald's. I drive up to the window, and I'm always excited when she's there because of her attitude. Um, she has a smile on her face. She greets you warmly. She asks you how you do, you're doing in a way that would that brings dignity to her work. And I'm always glad when I see her, when I approach the McDonald's, I hope that she's working. Uh, she is the, um, I think, an illustration of what you're talking about, having an attitude uh, that brings value to your work. Yes. You know, I think many of us, when we look at experiences in our lives, and one of the things that I do in the, the book is I, I give real life examples, either, either people that I have interacted with in my life, or people in different professions. Uh, there's a police officer or school teacher, different people I interview. Uh, and it's amazing to see how the mindset or the attitude uh, affects not only how they experience their work, but just as importantly, how they experience their life. Uh, I give one anecdote in the book, similar to what you just described, of a wonderful woman who was a security guard um, at the uh, building that I worked with years ago when I worked for Goldman Sachs. And I'll never forget, she always had that just amazing disposition, always greeted uh, people with a smile. And she would always say, you know, God bless you whenever I would come into the building. And I remember her having that same disposition even the day after uh, when I was coming to work after the attacks of 9-11. And the anecdote in the book, which is a true anecdote, I I asked her about the source of this. And she just began to express how much gratitude that she had for her just ability to do work and how she had done different types of work over the course of her life. But she was really grateful for what she experienced, the people that she interacted with, what she learned in that job. And and that example for me many years ago, uh, it just really always sat with me in terms of what kind of attitude we should have towards our work. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. One of the things I wanted to mention was that in the first part of the book, there's a reference to Genesis 2.15 and uh, just focusing on the the fact that we are designed to work and whatever that work happens to be when we approach it with the right attitude, um, we are honoring uh, the very one who designed us. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Shandron Thomas, who is the author of Discover Joy in Work, the transforming, or rather transforming your occupation into your vocation. And it really is a challenge to think about the work of our hands, the value that it has, because uh, work is honorable, and how we should approach it in a way that uh, that brings uh, perhaps greater satisfaction because we value the work that we do. In this section on the, in the workplace, you uh, write about our attitude, our approach, and our aptitude, as well as um, the achievement that is the result of all of that. Can you talk a bit about our approach and aptitude? Because that can elevate the work that we're doing in ways that uh, don't necessarily reflect a change in what we're actually doing, but a change in our approach. You're referring to, in the, in the first segment of the book, I, I introduce uh, what I call the four A's. We talked about the first attitude, uh, but those second two uh, that you refer to are approach and aptitude. Mm-hmm. Now, with respect to approach, it's just uh, realizing that given our unique sort of circumstances, wherever we work, uh, that we have to think about the approach that we take, not only towards actually our work product, what, whatever we're contributing, 
but also the approach that we take to, to those that we work with, uh, because we virtually all work in community. And I, I, I give examples of simple disciplines such as prioritization. Many people come to the workplace and their day just happens to them. And so the proverbial checklist that we have when we work in, walk into our workplace almost never gets fully completed. But we actually get more meaning or fulfillment out of our work when we're able to accomplish those things that are most important. So having the discipline to prioritize and reprioritize and make sure you're completing uh, the most important things. Partnerships. Here's a simple thing. It is, uh, research shows that if an individual has at least just one person in the workplace, that they view as a personal friend, it dramatically changes their experience in the workplace. And so that also says that the vast majority of people at work don't have even one person that they look at uh, where they've developed a relationship where they're a close personal friend. So if we can partner, we talk about that, with others in the workplace, it changes the nature of our experience. When you talk about aptitude, I would just simply say um, skills make a difference. And so all of us enjoy doing work that we're really good at, and the opposite is true. So the importance of actually developing professionally and personally uh, to, be, to really moving our focus to things that we're highly skilled at within the context of whatever our job is, is critically important for us to feel uh, that we're actually enjoying our work. In the second part of your book, you write about uh, work ethic. And when you think about work ethic, you often think about, do I manage the, uh, the company's uh, uh, things well? Am I managing my time well? And so on. But you really focus on some things that we find uh, mentioned in Scripture, the love of money, the praise of people, the pride of life. Talk about a work ethic and how uh, addressing these three areas can help us find the joy that uh, the title of your book suggests we can enjoy in our work. Well, the first thing, and, and I'm, I'm really glad that you, you brought out this, this thought of work ethic, because fundamentally, that means that we believe that work in and of itself has value. It has the ability to develop character to, in us. And so it means that work has value beyond what I would call the typical external motivators that we all look to. Now, in that segment of the book, I have what I refer to that you've referenced as the three rewards. Uh, number one is remuneration, getting paid for the work that we do. Uh, two is recognition, right? People want to be recognized or, or praised for what they do. And the third one is respect, right? Now, none of those things inherently are bad, but the, the fundamental issue is when your external motivation is greater than your internal drive or motivation, then you're out of balance. And so to really have come from a place where we recognize those things have their relevance, but we keep them in the right context. And our self-motivation, our desire to grow and build our character, our desire to be a good uh, employee, our desire to be a good partner in the workplace, uh, our desire to do work that is missional and has lasting value. If those things are greater than what I call those external motivators, you find that those individuals uh, find not only a deep fulfillment, uh, but joy in their work. That is so excellent. In the third part of your book, and there are um, are three parts uh, in the book, uh, you focus on your work life, what uh, work reveals about your purpose and the requirement of effort. Talk a little bit about work life, because it does consume so much of so many of our 
uh, our, our days, uh, that it's important to put it in a proper context so that we do enjoy the work that, uh, that we have? Well, uh, the first thing um, that I, I try to uh, address is there's this term that we hear a lot, a lot work-life balance. Uh, and while I get the spirit of what people are suggesting, I think the reality is uh, there's no perfect balance that we, we find, so to speak, if you were trying to weigh those skills. Uh, think about the demands of just of everyday life. Uh, you know, I was thinking about in preparation for this, I think about not only what you do in your work in the marketplace, but what you do in the church and so many different communities. I'm sure that is always a battle to, quote unquote, to find some proverbial sense of balance. And so the real thing that I think we seek to find is what I describe as work-life synergy, that your work is integrated with your life. And so your work ultimately becomes an expression of the mission of your life. And when you're at one, when there's a synergy between what you do vocationally and the life you're seeking to lead, your values and your vision for your life, that's when you really enjoy your work. So, so in that segment of the book, we give seven principles uh, that we think when uh, that I believe when we we follow those principles, we are able to achieve that sense of work life synergy. And ultimately, when you achieve that 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 sense of work life synergy, uh, that's when you're more at one. And and where we conclude is, I believe as a person of faith, that's when our work ultimately glorifies God. Well, I so appreciate how you discourage us from compartmentalizing and imagining that work is in one segment that has very little value, but then you move over to <clears throat> one's faith or, <clears throat> excuse me, or, or church, and that's a different uh, value. But the seven principles that you point out uh, really help us gain perspective on the value of all of the time that is devoted uh, to work and uh, help us to put things into perspective. Yeah, it's so important because, again, when I think about my own, not not professional journey, but my personal maturity and journey in life, I think early on in my career, there was sort of this thought of there's there's work and, and then there's what I do uh, in my faith walk, right? Uh, and the reality is I came to conclude very early on that that was far too much dissonance. Um, that when I'm spending most of my waking hours mm-hmm. pursuing my occupation and ultimately my vocation, how can I have that sort of separation? And so if, if, if God is not using right, my work experience to perfect me, that's a lot of hours of the day where I'm not growing or maturing spiritually or being perfected. If those very circumstances don't allow me to make meaningful connections with people, uh, that transcend just what we do at work. I believe relationships are one of those things that transition from this life to the next. And so, again, I think that either consciously or unconsciously, we've accepted many times a false dichotomy. And what in part the book tries to do is bring uh, people back into the place where work is truly what God intended. I think it's really important. You, you referenced right before the break um, how the book of Genesis begins. And I always tell people, uh, the Bible is written very intentionally, and so we do not find a God at rest when we open the book. We find a God at work, and we find the same God when he introduces or forms the physical man. One of the first things that we see he introduces man mm-hmm. to is productive work. Yeah, yeah. Who would you say is your primary audience? So this is an important question as well, because uh, at the very beginning of the book, the dedication simply says, I'm writing to the working world. 
and and I truly do mean that. Uh, sometimes what happens, uh, particularly uh, when you're a person of faith, they say, well, is this just a book that's written to uh, people who are Christians or believers or, or just people who share the same faith? And I said, no. I said, certainly anything that I communicate is a reflection of that faith. Uh, but the reality is every day I go to work in a pluralistic uh, workplace. And I work with people of many ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, and of many faiths. But truth is indeed evident, and people connect on those truths. And I think we are all meant to have a light that shines, that ultimately reflects Christ in our lives, and is meant to touch every person that we touch. I believe that this unique perspective of work that I have is something that is intended to reach other people that are seeking this sense of meaningfulness in their work. And that can be the 522-year-old that's fresh out of college, pursuing their first uh, job. Uh, that can be uh, the wonderful individual who's coming back from serving our country in the military and looking to deploy skills that they got in their training. It can be the person that's in their late 40s having that proverbial midlife crisis, or it could be the person uh, that's 60 years old that's thinking about their legacy as they look forward in terms of how they want to deploy themselves to their work. Well, I'm glad you answered the question that way, because that is precisely the way I see the book having impact in all of those scenarios, uh, including my own. Once again, the title of the book is Discover Joy in Work, Transforming Your Occupation into Your Vocation. It's very practical. I think you'll find it uh, very helpful. And I thank you so much for the book and for taking time to share it with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Thank you. Again, my guest, Chandran Thomas. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. I think you'll find it very, very useful. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We all know that the Supreme Court is expected to render its decision at some point in the not too distant future. Some had predicted it would be as early as this week. Others suggest it will be in June, which is more typical for when these kinds of decisions are released. In any event, we know that an announcement has been made that there will be a season, a summer of rage and that women will be ungovernable. Now, what that means precisely isn't altogether clear. But some are arguing that America is readier than ever to repeal Roe. Now, there's there, the, the great divide still exists. Um, there are people who believe that Roe should stand but don't support uh, the fact that Roe versus Wade allows abortion virtually uh, to the point of life um, ex utero. All of that said, Chuck Donovan wrote an interesting piece titled America is readier than ever to repeal Roe, in which he points out that in 1983, the last effort by pro-life forces to pass federal legislation providing full protection for the unborn failed on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Stunned by the defeat after a decade of grassroots mobilization, the pro-life movement turned in new directions. The most momentous of these was a campaign to support the mothers and their babies led by pregnancy resource centers and policymakers allied with them. An argument can be made that, in terms of services and policies, America was not ready for the reversal of Roe v. Wade in 83. Today, on the threshold of the Supreme Court itself reversing Roe v. Wade, America is much closer to readiness. If um, The list precedes uh, Roe v. Wade, but has grown in scope and now covers not only health insurance, income support, grassroots, and of pregnancy services, tax relief for families and children, adoption and charitable donation credits and programs to deal with sex trafficking, fatherhood programs, maternity homes, job training, addiction care, and more besides. 
Um, there are uh, policy initiatives that have occurred and expanded over the past four decades, and it would um, run to dozens of pages and involve all 50 states and territories if they were to be listed in their entirety. Well, the extent of these changes and the numbers of women affected are impressive. In 1965, Congress enacted the Medicaid and Medicare programs covering maternity care through a federal state um, partnership for millions of poor women. The program needs a variety of reforms and better financial management, but its scope is undeniable, reaching 42% of all women and more than 50% in states like Texas and Mississippi. In the 80s, explosive growth occurred in pregnancy help centers founded and supported by citizen groups and churches. Three major networks grew rapidly, Heartbeat International, CareNet, and the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates. The centers increasingly medicalized, augmented material support and counseling, and now the centers employ as paid staff or volunteers more than 10,200 licensed healthcare professionals nationwide. Some 3,000 sites include brick-and-mortar locations and mobile units, reach 2 million people a year with extremely high satisfaction rates. Under the first Bush administration, pro-life leaders, including National Commission on Children co-chair K. Cole James, helped spearhead the fight for a federal child tax credit available to all income tax-paying families. Despite initial legislation defeat in the House, those leaders persuaded the new Republican Congress under Speaker Newt Gingrich to include $500 per child tax credit for working families as the crown jewel of his contract with America. Since its enactment, the law was literally has returned trillions of dollars to families to invest in their children. Not long after, pro-life groups were key to the enactment of federal and state adoption tax credits. These benefits were designed to Recognize and defray the high cost of adoption and make it more affordable for low and middle income families. The credits are also designed to reduce the cost of extended foster care to the states. Today, some states like Florida are providing additional benefits like free state university and community college tuition to adopted children. The maximum federal credit is now fourteen thousand four hundred dollars. But there's more. While most pregnancy centers work remains privately funded, centers across the nation increasingly benefit from state-funded programs loosely grouped under the category of A2A alternatives to abortion. Well, these projects, now found in 14 states, help fund pregnancy assistance that goes beyond the calendar of immediate needs centers originally addressed. They recognize that pregnancy is a life-altering experience and that maternal and family needs do not end at birth. The projects, even those that reject government funding on principle or because of the centrality of their religious mission, face sharp criticism from legal abortion advocates. But they carry on providing residential and job preparation services to women who reject abortion as a solution. Today, the National Maternity Housing Coalition includes dozens of residences nationwide affiliated through Heartbeat International, which works with its own network of more than 3,000 pregnancy help centers and 971 locations worldwide. These groups realize that hundreds of thousands of women remain to be reached in the United States alone, and they are in it for the long haul. Affiliates on the National Maternity Housing Coalition need to be religious, need not be religious, rather, but they are required to adhere to the commitment of care and competence, which establishes standards of excellence and truthfulness in this life-saving and Christ-centered work. Increasingly, in the potential wake of a reversal of Roe versus Wade, pro-lifers, uh, pro-life states are updating their policies, securing new funding streams for pregnancy centers and seeking to address maternity care deserts within their borders. Forty years ago, the pro-life movement endured major defeat in Congress. 
Today, it is winning triumph after triumph, saving life after life all across the nation with a focus on providing life affirming choices and supporting and support rather to the incredible women we call mom. This is the landscape of the Supreme Court court decision that is likely to be announced within the next few weeks that may, in fact, if the leaked draft opinion is uh, remains true to what was released, um, Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Now, we understand that that means that the states will then return to being the decision makers as to whether or not abortion is going to be and how it's going to be practiced within the boundaries of each state. And that's where it was before the Supreme Court intervened. So it will be an interesting season, the summer of rage where women will be ungovernable and a season of celebration for those who have worked and toiled and prayed and volunteered and donated to efforts to support women who choose to carry their children to term. The work will begin in earnest uh, if Roe versus Wade is overturned and the challenges will be in some ways just as great or perhaps even greater. America, readier than ever to repeal Roe. Well, certainly the, the uh, infrastructure is there, uh, but the hearts and minds have a ways to go. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.